Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored today to be in dialogue with my guest, Dr. Racheli Haliva. She is a junior professor at the Institute for Jewish Philosophy and Religion and one of the co-directors of the Maimonides Center for Advanced Studies, Jewish Skepticism at Universität Hamburg, the University of Hamburg. We are here today to discuss her book, Isaac Polkar, A Jewish Philosopher or a Philosopher and a Jew, Philosophy and Religion in Isaac Polkar's Ezer Hadat and Teshuvat Apikoros, published in Berlin by De Gruyter, 2020. Racheli, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Thank you. Um, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? Can you share with us something about your family and your upbringing? Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, Dimona, which is a very uh, small city in the south of Israel, like 30 kilometers uh, south to Be'er Sheva. Um, after my uh, service in the army, I went to study my BA and my MA at the Hebrew University, <clears throat> after which I moved to Canada, to Montreal, and completed my PhD in 2015 at McGill University in the Institute for Jewish uh, Studies and Philosophy, but it was sort of a combination between Jewish studies, philosophy, and Islamic studies. Um, and since uh, December 2015, I'm here in Hamburg, as you said, I'm a junior professor here, so I have some students here, many undergrad, but also um, I'm responsible for the MA program. Um, and in between those, I'm also part of this family that is called Maimani, the Center for Advanced Studies, where we have uh, a fellowship program organizing many events um, and collaborating with the Jewish community here in Hamburg. So that's in a nutshell who I am. Wonderful. How did you become interested in studying medieval Jewish thought and philosophy? Um, so when I came to the Hebrew University, I started my BA uh, in international relations and archaeology. And at one point, I realized that um, that's not really my field that I want to, uh, to pursue. Uh, so I entered a class by uh, Professor Avirovitsky, who gave the introduction to uh, medieval Jewish philosophy and thought. And uh, I felt like home. So I switched my major, my, my minor, to um, Jewish thought, like Mahshabat Israel, and philosophy. And uh, I'm there since then. So it was a wonderful place during the 2000s to, to learn at the Hebrew U with all the great minds, such as uh, uh, Professor Harvey, Professor Moshe Idel, uh, Israel Knoll, Meir Buzaglo, um, Katerina Rigo, who was my, my uh, MA uh, advisor, uh, and Moshe Halberta and many others. So uh, this is how I became like part of this medieval Jewish philosophy and thought family. Wow, what an impressive list of teachers you've had. 
I'm, I'm in awe of the people that you have worked with and gotten to know personally. What a, you're, you're so blessed to have known such yeah. people and learned from such people. What inspired privileged, yes. <laughs> what inspired you to write this book? What drew you to Itzhak Pulkar's writing in particular? Right. So when when I came to McGill, so I already came with some sort of idea, general idea, what I wanted to do in my PhD. And it was a post-Maimonidian thought. So, you know, many people are dealing with Maimonides. Uh, writing about Maimonides, whether they like it, whether they don't like it. And uh, for me, it was more interesting to see how people reacted to Maimonides, more precisely how people deviated themselves from Maimonides. And uh, the options were um, very limited. So it was either Caspi um, or Narboni or Albalag or Polkar. Um, but what drew me to Polkar was, I guess, his connection to, um, to Abner of Burgos, the, the convert, uh, according to Yitzhak Ber, the, the most dangerous convert in Jewish history. Um, and the connection between the theological part and the philosophical part is what drew me to personally to Yitzhak Polkar. At the beginning, I had no idea where I'm going. Um, to end with uh, with his thought, but um, I'm very happy that I, I did. I found a very uh, original and profound thinker uh, who was radical in many times, but yet respectful. Um, so uh, this is how I came to start to 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 study his his thought and his surroundings, especially the the Christian. Um, or the converts, more precisely. Speaking of Abner of Burgos, who was he? Can you contextualize him for us? Can you describe him for our listeners who might not be familiar? Yeah. Uh, so Abner of Burgos, actually, he was Polkar's teacher, as, as uh, uh, he attests in one of the, the letters. He tells Polkar, uh, I remember you were so wise when you were in Beit Midrashi, yeah, in my school. So he, he was his teacher. Um, uh, so he was a rabbi, like before his conversion, he was a rabbi uh, and who lived in the 13th century. And uh, when he was 62 or 63, he testified that he had a, str a struggle, a long struggle um, between Judaism and Christianity, the struggle took like years. And after these years of struggle, he um, decided to, uh, to convert to Christianity. And I can only imagine what it did to, to people like Polko, yeah, who were his, uh, his students and uh, who really looked up uh, to Abner uh, their really admired rabbi who decides to, to leave Judaism and not only to leave Judaism, uh, it's okay, you know, if you want to, uh, to convert to Christianity for whatever reason, but the problem is that Abner not only converted to Christianity, but he did everything in his power to convince uh, as many Jews as possible to, uh, to convert as well. So for that, he, uh, he didn't write in Spanish. I mean, he had one uh, translation of his own 
uh, work, Moret Tzedek. So he wrote the work in Hebrew, but then he's, he translated itself, himself to, to Spanish. But most of his work is written in Hebrew. Most of his work contain um, mainly Jewish sources, mainly Jewish sources to, to, uh, to be familiar to the Jewish ear. So that's why I guess Yitzhak Ber is writing that he's the most dangerous one. Um, Polker himself accuses um, Abner of converting to Christianity for, um, I should say, uh, for convenient reasons. So it, it would be more convenient to be a Christian in that period of time in Northern Spain than to be a persecuted Jew. So he's really accusing him of, of uh, seeking a better and easy life. Um, the same goes for Narboni, who writes against, uh, against um, Abner uh, in the issue of Chofesh um, Ratzon, of the um, freedom of the will, because this is how Abner is perceiving himself as a, as a determinist. He had no choice but to convert to Christianity. So uh, Narboni is attacking him on, on that point. In your study, you devote significant attention to Polkar's critique of Christianity. Can you comment on the relevance of this critique for our time? What is Polkar's place and in, in, in debates about Jewish-Christian relations, whether the history of Jewish-Christian relations? Um, can you speak about the grounds on which he critiqued Christianity. Right. So I guess his critique didn't start against Christianity per se, but as the converts, right? So right. he's first and foremost attack the, the converts. But he, like Maimonides, like others, uh, um, they have a big problem with the, the Christian doctrines as a, as a strict um, um, Averroist or Maimonidean in that sense. Uh, they are defending the idea of monotheism and more importantly that God has no um, human attributes of any sort. And Christianity poses a very big problem to, to a Jew or to a Muslim at that time to think about Jesus as a God or the incarnation or the Trinity that damages the whole idea of unity. Uh, so he has a problem theologically and philosophically with Christianity, and I think it would be valid again now because the, the doctrines are not uh, different, they're pretty much the same. Um, but in terms of the political aspect, I don't think he had any problem. I mean, as long as Christians would live an ethical life, he had no problem um, them being Christians. The problem is the, the persecution and oppression. And the political becomes relevant when he attacks on theological and political ground. How should we understand the difference between Averroism and Maimonideanism in medieval Jewish philosophy. Are the two terms interchangeable? Why or why not? How should we differentiate between them? Why do you emphasize Jewish Averroism and Averroists as opposed to Maimonideanism and Maimonideanists? Right. 
It's a good question. So, um, as you know, Maimonides and, and Averroes were contemporaries, more or less. Um, and the, the reason why I call those people, uh, at least my um, Polkar and Albalag Averroes, as opposed to, let's say, Caspi, who were uh, Maimonidean, um, is the way they are addressing main um, philosophical issues. So I'll give an example. So if, uh, for instance, we take the idea of the creation or let's say a cosmogony. So until today, people are debating what is Maimonides' genuine opinion, right? So uh, some would side with um, the idea that the world is created ex nihilo from the absolute non-existent, but others like Professor Harvey, for instance, uh, he thinks that Maimonides was pretty Aristotelian, siding with uh, the eternity of the world. Now, this crucial questions um, was very vague in the guide of the perplex. You cannot really find a clear answer. What is Maimonides' opinion? It, it cannot. It cannot be like as clear as yeah. other topics. Um, so at one point he says you know, because it's not a demonstrative proof that the world is created ex nihilo, either um, it is eternal, therefore I would go with the prophets and I will hold the, the belief of our Torah that the world was created ex nihilo. Um, and people like Albalag and, and uh, Polka um, completely rejected that because they came after uh, Averroes after the commentary of uh, uh, Averroes on Aristotle's work on the physics and the metaphysics, um, the anima, etc. And they already have what they call a demonstrative proof that the world is nitzchi, yeah, it's eternal in a way. Um, so in that sense, in the, those kind of crucial um, questions, they're siding with uh, even Rushd with Averroes and not with Maimonides. The same thing goes, for instance, um, about their idea of the commandments, for example. Maimonides was very uh, um, eager to, under, to, to explain uh, the commandments and their meaning. He devotes like 26 chapters of the guide to explain those. While uh, Al-Balag and Polkar, it was quite clear that, yeah, it is important to, to observe the commandments, but uh, to a certain limits, because there are more important commandments than the other. So if you deal with philosophy, which is the most important commandment, it's way more important if you pray three times a day or if you keep kosher. Those are only uh, a means to an end. So in that sense, um, I call him and, and Albalang uh, Averroes because they're not really, uh, they're not afraid to, to, to adopt Averroes' point of view. Caspi is more careful. Caspi is really defending Maimonides with everything he got. Even if he has some sort of criticism, it, it's very difficult to, to understand that he's really criticizing. Uh, but um, in the other two, or even in some cases, Narboni, what they try to do in many cases is to interpret Maimonides in light of Averroes' philosophy, to say that was what Maimonides really meant, even though, you know, it's a stretch, but that's what they do. 
Uh, and in other cases like Al-Balag, who is really a radical one, he is criticizing Maimonides with everything he's got to the point where he says, you know, the Guide of the Perplexed was written for the Hamon, for the masses, for the multitude. My book, you know, Tikuna de Ot, uh, is for the, the philosophers. So uh, I don't know anyone from the post-Maimonidean thought who would be so um, direct in his criticism against Maimonides, but he would never say that about Averroes. Yes. In your conclusion, you relate Pulcar to Spinoza, noting that Jewish Averroists critique Maimonides parallels Spinoza's. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah. Um, so we don't have a clear evidence whether Spinoza read Polkow or uh, Caspi, but we do know that he read Crescas, uh, Haste Crescas, for instance. We do know that he was aware of Orashem of Crescas, and Crescas was greatly influenced by Avner of Burgos, especially when it comes to determinism and the free will discussion. Um, so it's not inevitable. Already Shlomo Pines noted a few, a few uh, uh, ideas connecting Polka and, uh, and Spinoza. But um, I found like a very interesting um, discussion that might, through uh, some channels, uh, reach Spinoza from Polka. And that's the, his theory of, of prophecy. So prophecy, according to Maimonides and also Averroes and you know, Ibn Sina and uh, uh, other post-Maimonidean thinkers are that the prophet is first and foremost a great philosopher. He has to be a great philosopher. He has to have uh, ethical virtues and he has to have a very good power of imagination, right? That's what makes a prophet a prophet. And uh, Polkar is completely against this idea. So he says in, uh, in the third part of the Ezeradat, he says um, that the prophet only gets the, um, the emanation from the divine onto, onto his power of imagination. It has nothing to do with intellectual power. And if you go to the TTP, the Tractatus, uh, the, the tractate, the theological political tractate by, by Spinoza, the first two chapters, that's exactly what he says there. Prophecy and prophet, he says, the only thing that the prophet has is a vivid imagination. It has nothing to do with his intellectual power. So this, I mean, it's very difficult for me to see, to not to see the connection between it. But even though I don't have really the clear evidence that he actually read Ezeradat, or whether he got to this, this idea through, uh, through other channels with Abner, Kreskas, and then um, until the 17th century Spinoza. Can you elaborate on Polkar's understanding of prophecy? What does this say about his understanding of epistemology and of politics? How does Polkar's understanding of prophecy differ from Maimonides and Avicenna? Yeah, well, um, according to Avicenna, there are basically two levels of prophecy, right? You have uh, the emanation from the active intellect emanating on the what he called the undeveloped or unmature 
um, uh, intellect, and then he somehow gets everything through. In Arabic, it's called the hats. So it's sort of an intuition. He gets everything, but it's undeveloped. So this is the lower level. And the higher level is when this person is mature, meaning that he really prepared himself in time, in terms of uh, time and, and study uh, to receive this, this emanation. And Maimonides is, is, um, is quite influenced by that. Um, for Maimonides, we have to remember that the, the ultimate man of, of all is, of course, Moses. And what makes Moses the, the most perfect um, human is uh, both being a great philosopher and being a great prophet. So that means that uh, according to, to Maimonides, when you talk about a, a prophet, you cannot separate prophecy from philosophy. Every prophet is necessarily a philosopher. My, my Moses is necessarily a perfect philosopher. Uh, the emanation that he gets um, overflows onto his uh, intellectual power and his, his power of imagination. And, uh, and Polka is, is really, um, he's, he doesn't accept this Maimonidean view. And this is one of the cases that he completely um, um, criticized Maimonides. Uh, he describes the, the, the process of prophecy as if the emanation, um, let's say emanates directly to the power of imagination, this person is called Navi or Jose, you know, a prophet or Jose, whatever you want to, to translate that. And if the emanation emanates from the active intellect onto the person's uh, um, intellectual power, then he is what he calls Ha'adama Shalem, the perfect man. So for him, if according to Maimonides, the prophet is the peak of humanity, According to Polka, the philosopher is the um, is the the peak of humanity. Uh, there is another aspect to it um, in terms of education. A prophet cannot educate other people. He's only he only gets his own um, personal experience. He cannot teach anyone. So even if he has this kind of inspiration, this huts, this intuition, he cannot really teach to other. And for Polkar, the idea of education is extremely important. The philosopher can lead you from one point to another by teaching you because he's doing, uh, um, he's doing the correct pro process of understanding by learning and not by just, you know, uh, an instant um, inspiration. What does it mean to you to study Rabbi Pulkar as a female? What unique insights do you bring to medieval Jewish philosophy by studying it as a woman? In light of what you just alluded to, his idea of the perfect man, hmm. would his idea of the perfect man include women? Could a female achieve the status of a perfect man? according to Paul Carr. What is your perspective on that? Uh, it's not really my perspective. It's his own perspective. He was uh, a person of his time, you know, and nobody were uh, women uh, advocates at that time. I, I cannot really uh, point to anyone who was uh, a feminist at that time. I tried to, um, to study him as, 
you know, as a, a philosopher, what it means for me as a female, not so much. I mean, uh, if I had to exclude uh, medieval philosophers who were against women, I wouldn't study any, any of them, as you may know. Um, but, you know, I try to judge his work based on the time that he lived in and not based on, um, on his judgment against uh, what he calls the fool, the women and the kids, you know, not, not very uh, different than Maimonides in a way. Would Polkar's critique of Kabbalah as it appears in his, in his book, Ezer Haddad, have extended to Sufism as well? Likewise, would Polkar's critique of Al-Ghazali's incoherence of the philosophers based on Averroes critique have extended to Sufism more broadly? Why or why not? Was it? Um, we don't have any evidence. I mean, the whole connection between uh, Polkar and Abner and their debate to Kabbalah is debatable in itself. So. Uh, there is one scholar, Shoshana Gershenson, who actually sees the connection uh, between Abner uh, and his debate with Polka and Kabbalah. I have to say that I, I didn't find any evidence to that. Um, it was quite parallel when Sefer Hazor was, uh, was discovered slash written in the 13th century. Um, so uh, I, I don't see any uh, any um, um, connect any clear connection to to Kabbalah. As for the connection to Sufism, um, so he doesn't have a clear discussion about Sufism. But based on what he says on personal experience and how men should uh, uh, reach the ultimate goal. Uh, he would be against Sufism because Sufism, um, he, of course, he was the, the first uh, opponent of Ghazali. He says that uh, quite clear. Uh, but generally to Sufism, uh, the whole idea of personal experience uh, in a sense that you cannot, again, we're going back to the education part, that you cannot really teach others about this personal experience is problematic. So um, again, I would stress that there is no clear discussion about that, but uh, based on, on other theories that he um, discussed in the letter and the, uh, in Ezra Dat, he would be completely against uh, any kind of Sufism. What contribution does Polkar make to epistemology? How does Polkar understand the nature of knowledge? Uh, it's not different than the way Averroes and Maimonides thought. Uh, so for him, it's quite clear how you get a true knowledge, yeah? how he, he was anti-skeptic in that sense. He, he does think that you are able to reach true knowledge if you do all the stages. So if you study what Maimonides already said, that you have to first uh, study logic and then mathematics and then 
physics and then astronomy and only then you reach to to metaphysics so when it comes to epistemological knowledge of the physics he he has no problem with that so you can reach there is absolutely no problem of reaching um a true knowledge um and again he belongs to this uh, to this school of caspi falakera narboni etc that uh, are anti-skeptic in that sense. When it comes to metaphysics, then things are becoming more problematic, yeah, because then you have to talk about the nature of God, uh, whether or not you're able to say something about the essence of God. Um, and it's and it's a very complicated issue, especially after uh, Maimonides' uh, theory of the via negativa, that you cannot say anything positive. You cannot... Um, give any positive attribution to uh, to to God. Um, and the only way is to do a negative. So Polka doesn't continue with this via negativa issue, uh, but he does claim that you are able to reach some sort of uh, metaphysical knowledge in, in that sense. Still, I mean, Again, it doesn't have a very clear discussion like Maimonides does in, in the Guide of the Perplexed about the limitation of the human knowledge, but, uh, um, but it would be uh, very um, reasonable to assume that even for him, um, as an anti-skeptic in a way, there would be a limit. So you won't be able to fully understand the separate intellects, and certainly you won't be able to fully understand the first cause whether it's God or, or not. A significant portion of your book is devoted to Polkar's understanding of Sadiq Viralo. How does Polkar understand theodicy? Can you elaborate yeah. for us? Yeah, uh, so this is a, a significant part of my book because it was extremely important to Polka. It was part of his... Uh, uh, debate with Abner, the, the determinist, yeah, who, who denies any uh, free will. So um, Sadiq uh, um, Veralo, Rashabutovlo, the whole theodicy, it's uh, it's it is brought in the in the Ezeradat in order to um, to claim that there is a free will as opposed to what Abner says. So what he basically says. Uh, are, is the following. There are three uh, types of events okay, in the world that we can categorize them. So the first one would be what he called the tivim, yeah, the natural one. The second one would be uh, the mikrim, the, the, the accidental one. And the third one would be retzonim, uh, yeah, the voluntary one. So the first two types of events, and these events also include like... Um, whatever is happening to human, uh, he claims that human being has no influence about that, right? So uh, um, if we know that next week there's going to be an eclipse or there's going to be a snow, there's absolutely no way we can prevent that or do anything to change that. The same thing goes with uh, the accident. If something uh, goes by accident, let's say, um, uh, if um, a, a natural disaster happens and one stone is fallen on someone's head, so he would call it as an accident, not as a natural, but again, human beings cannot uh, prevent that or change the course of the stone. 
Um, and then the third one, which is the most important one, the voluntary one, he says that uh, God or the first cause in the first place eliminated himself from not being attached to this kind of events. Because if he would have been attached to this kind of events, then it would have uh, limited him. Yeah, it would put him in, in some sort of, uh, of limitation. So the fact, so God doesn't know, literally God doesn't know what we do, except that when we're actually doing that, and then he, because he's the first cause, so of course he's the first cause of everything, but the, the, the part where someone is making a choice, whether A or B, God himself doesn't know, not because he's limited, but because he's omniscient and and um, um, omnipotent. That's that precisely a test to his omnipotence. Does it make sense to you? Yes, thank you. <laughs> How is this understanding of theodicy or of Tzaddik Virello similar or different from Polkar's contemporaries among Maimonideans and Averroists in the Jewish world? Do they think similarly about Sadiq Verallo, or is there something different in the nuance that Polkar applies to the question of theodicy? Right. So we, in, I mean, maybe to connect to the to the previous question. So the whole question of Sadiq Verallo, uh, I think uh, Polkar is not different so much from from Maimonides. So as long as you are um occupied yourself with the study of philosophy of sciences the more you occupy yourself the more you're protected right the more you're governed the and the less harm come to you but uh, since we're all human beings in a body so we cannot be engaged in philosophy 24 7 so in those instances that you're not engaged in philosophy then the harm can come to you. So in that sense, he's not so different from uh, Maimonides. As for contemporary, I'm, I'm not quite sure who I can say who is the contemporary Maimonidean or, or Averroes. Um, I suppose it's, uh, I mean, if you, if you judge this kind of, of theories from uh, uh, 21st century, it would seem a bit weird, right? I mean, it would seem really uh, weird that if you are in a laboratory and uh, investigating uh, any kind of, I don't know, mathematical problem or physical problem. Uh, so the idea that no harm can come to you, it seems, uh, it seems a bit weird in our, um, in our eyes, but to certainly to Maimonides and to Polka and to other, uh, post-Maimonidean thinkers, they really thought that uh, the, the, the more you are uh, in philosophy, in science, so you understand the world better. And if you understand the world better, it means that you can avoid those damages or those uh, calamities. Um, and one, I mean, one aspect of it, actually, it's one of the most interesting um, theory that he has is the, 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 the exile, right? So, uh, of course, we're talking about Jews in exile, um, very um, difficult time for them. Uh, so for him, I mean, he would say probably, you know, the exile came upon the Jews, not because, um, 
maybe I should maybe I should give like the background on this. So so you have more or less un until Polkar, you have three opinions why the exile happened, right? So you have the Orthodox Jews who say the the exile came because we were sinned, we abandoned God, and uh, therefore we are punished. Okay, this is very orthodox. We have the Christian idea that says, you know, you didn't accept Jesus, uh, you didn't uh, accept him as the Messiah, therefore you are punished. In any in other way, they're punished. And then Maimonides comes and, and brings another natural idea, right? In the, the, the letter to the um, sages of Montpellier. So he, he argues there that um, the, the exile came because our fathers, that's what he writes, our father made a sin. They did not um, occupy themselves with occupying lands and protecting the land because they were too busy with stargazing, yeah, with astrology. So because they focused on astrology, they did not do what they were supposed to do to protect the land. Therefore, we were exiled because, you know, the, the nations uh, kicked us out from the land of Israel and then we are where we are. <clears throat> and then Polka comes and he says, absolutely not. We were exiled because we followed the law, because we had the commandments, because we had an ethical code. And since you have an ethical code, it literally means that you are weaker because you're not, you don't have weapon, you don't fight. So because you were um, um, following the law and other nations were, did not have an ethical law, then they were able to persecute you. That means that, you know, he somehow, you know, contradicts himself. So if on the one hand, you're saying that we were exiled and punished because you were keeping and observing the commandment. So that means that you're also occupying yourself with philosophical and, and um, uh, scientific knowledge. But on the other hand, you are punished. So, and you're exiled. So where, I mean, the theodicy here is, is a little bit uh, problematic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think he's too far from Maimonides in terms of theodicy, uh, but on, at the same time, he's also deviating a little bit um, from uh, Maimonides' idea of theodicy. What might Polkar and those who thought similarly to him in his period say to those who are unable by virtue of circumstances beyond their control, who are unable to obtain expertise in the theoretical sciences. For, for example, how would he, what, would he, what might he say to those who, because of barriers of class, economics, privilege, gender, mental health, or race, are unable to acquire the expertise in the theoretical and physical sciences? Are they relegated to quote unquote ignorance and vulgarity and to be part of the multitude forever? And in fact, yeah. even within the academic world as we experience it in our time in the year 2022, even within the sciences, the divisions between disciplines and the silo effect between scholars who isolate themselves into specific specializations 
prevents people from mastering multiple fields and multiple subfields. Hence, the organization of science in our day, even if we avoid thinking about the economics or political economy of science in our day, is very different than in a medieval context when the sum total knowledge of what was considered science was, was more limited. I'm curious, how do we reevaluate Polkar and those who thought similarly to him in light of the significant barriers that exist in our own day when scientific knowledge is more available, but also there are greater barriers to access it than in other times. How would how how might we think of him in this context and those who thought like him? Right. I don't think he's, he's different than this uh, circle of uh, Maimonides, Ibn Tibon. There certainly were an elitist in that sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. And by elitist, I mean not only the person who has barrier of, uh, let's say, um, um, wealth, health, etc. Even if you have all those preconditions, yeah, that you're healthy in your body and mind, that you were coming from um, a well-established family, etc., you still need to have the capacity and the ability to reach those uh, levels of philosophical knowledge. The fact that you have all those pre preconditions does not guarantee that you will get there, certainly. Uh, but I do think that um, Polkar has some sort of uh, um, um, sense of responsibility. So even if you are, for whatever reason, cannot reach this those kind of levels, you're still part of the community, and this community is supposed to protect you as such. So uh, um, he wouldn't say that, you know, like we say today, everybody is born equal. He would certainly not say that everybody's not born equal until, until um, according to, to his view. But even if people are not uh, born equal, they're still deserve to be protected. They're still deserve to be part of the, the community. They're still deserve to, um, to at least study or, or um, be educated, for instance, uh, in the main, the main things, like the fact that people are educated to say the Shema all the time, yeah, to, to indicate that God is, uh, is one that he's incorporeal. He understands that they don't fully understand what it means that God is one, what God, that God is uh, incorporeal. But at least, you know, the education for them gives them the opportunity to be part of this, of this discourse in that sense. Um, so elitist, yes, but, uh, but I wouldn't say he's like completely, um, he would call them ignorant, but th they would deserve this kind of protection and, uh, and guidance, as long as, you know, the, the, the rabbis will allow this sort of philosopher king to, to be part of this community and to lead that. Yes. How would Pulkar have been introduced to Averroes' writings in the first place? How would he have come to interact with Ibn Rus' ideas personally, educationally, like sociologically? How would he have accessed these ideas to begin with? So um, 
first of all, we know that Pokor read Arabic. He knew Arabic, even though he lived in Castilla at that time in northern um, Spain. And the, the reason that we know uh, that he knew Arabic is that um, Al-Balag's uh, book, uh, Tikuna de Oud, so Al-Balag is translating um, the Maqasid, the, the Al-Ghazali's work, but he didn't finish the translation. And Polka was the one who finished the, the translation. So we know he knew Arabic. At that time, the, the writing of Averroes were quite... Um, um, they were quite widespread, so he, he had no problem of reaching the Arabic uh, original text. Some of them he knew through uh, a second um, um, literature, yeah, like Al Balag himself was one of his uh, one of his sources. But um, he himself uh, cites the Tahafut Al Tahafut, the incoherence of the incoherence. So we know that at least he had some access to to Averroes, um, to the Averroes books in Arabic. So that wouldn't be a problem. What does it say about the nature and character of Jewish religion that its engagement with Greek philosophy arguably took place relatively late compared to its rival religions, such as Christianity, for example, which was engaging with Aristotle and Plato ever since the church fathers centuries before Maimonides and his followers were on the scene. And likewise, um, whether it's Polkar engaging with Averroes or Maimonides um, engaging with Islamic thinkers they are engaging with thinkers who were engaging with Jewish, with, with Greek philosophy before Jews were, arguably. And I'm just curious, what does it say about the nature and character of Jewish religion that we engage with these thinkers relatively late relative to Christianity's engagement with these thinkers or even Islam's? Mm -hmm. Um, well, it's true. I mean, the um, I think the first Jewish comprehensive work that in, were engaged with, was engaged with the Greek philosophy was Philo, of course, Philo of Alexandria. Yes. Um, and of course, um, in the Middle Ages, it was thanks to the um, the project of translation from. Uh, Greek into Arabic in the ninth century onwards that they were just, you know, the scribes and the translator just brought every, um, every um, work in Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle in particular into their world. So um, of course there was a really a, a revival at that time simply be, because Jews, they didn't read Greek, but they read Arabic and, and this project of translating came in in full force. So yeah, it came late. Uh, and, and Polka and Maimonides himself and the rest of, of, this, um, of this group they were familiar with those uh, Arabic uh, translations that made it possible for them 
to to know Aristotle to the point where you know when you read for instance, Averroes' uh, commentary on Aristotle, it's very difficult in many times to separate what Aristotle actually said and what Averroes said. So people just immediately think that it's all Aristotle, but actually it's not because many of it, it's, it's Averroes' already commentary. So when the Jews used to uh, um, um, quote or cite or like bring uh, Aristotle, in many cases, they brought Averroes as Aristotle. So uh, you have to you have to go back to Aristotle to see what he says, and then to see what Averroes somehow, uh, in an integral way, uh, put Aristotle into his ideas or his ideas into Aristotle. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's relatively late, but uh, better late than never, I guess. <laughs> If Jewish Averroism was more mainstream in contemporary Jewish religious life than it is, what would be different about the Jewish religious community today? We tend to think of study Jewish Averroism and Maimonides and his successors and those who debated with him mm -hmm. in academic circles in Jewish studies departments and Jewish thought and philosophy departments. People like us are interested in um, right. um, Jewish Averroism and the response to Maimonides. If these ideas were more mainstream and more popular and presented in synagogues and, and such, what would be different about the culture of religious Jewish life in our time? I guess, I mean, if there would be this freedom of um, ideas, freedom of thought, um, I guess there would be more tolerance as far as I can see that. So uh, um, this become really relevant, like when Spinoza is doing that, right? He says, I have no way, I have no problem with the way you, uh, you, um, you're being a religious of any kind, as long as you give freedom of, of idea, freedom of thought. And, and, um, and I, I mean, I, I can hardly even imagine that what would happen if you go to Mersharim and you said, okay, so you know what, let's now uh, read a Jewish Averroist or even Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. I, I can only assume that uh, you won't, be able to leave this shul in one piece because in many cases they see it as a threat you know i mean first and foremost because you're bringing a foreign ideas into judaism second of all you are daring to um to discuss things like uh, uh, the commandments which are for them it's a divine decree it's not something to be discussed so uh, I can only assume that there, if there will be some sort of a transformation in, their, in the way they think, it would promote primarily uh, the tolerance between the many streams within Judaism because it will allow freedom of thought. Um, but when it comes to praxis, you can do whatever you want in your own home as long as you, you're not imposing anyone else. But that would be, you know, in Yemota Mashiach, if at all. I, you know, I'm not sure. Thank you. Uh, hopefully, thank you. <laughs> uh, as we bring this dialogue to a close, what are you working on now 
as your subsequent project? So it's it's different, but it's also connected to what I did. So um, I'm working in the past uh, year and a half, two years, um, about uh, conversion uh, in the um, in the Middle Ages, or so 13, 14, and 15th century. Um, not from a philosophical point of view, maybe a little bit from a philosophical point of view, but also from a political, but mainly a theological point of view. So I'm mainly interested in the converts who, like Abner, for instance, wrote in Hebrew. So not Petrus Alfonsi, who wrote in Latin or others. Um, my sense is that there is something that connects between those converts who insisted in writing in, in Hebrew uh, to address you know, their, their former community on the one hand. And on the other hand, those texts are not accessible to their new community unless you know, they are uh, uh, scholars and they know Hebrew, but there are not many of them um, knowing Hebrew. So um, I'm starting, I guess, pretty early with uh, Yaakov ben Reuven. And um, I will touch upon Abner, but a little bit because a lot of a lot has been done on Abner. Uh, Yoshua Loki, before he himself converted to Christianity, so before he he uh, converted, he was uh, a defender of Judaism against his own teacher, yeah, Shmuel um, of Gorgus. Uh, and I'm uh, particularly interested in the the last one from the 15th century, uh, whose name is uh, Moshe HaKohen. Um, and, uh, and the question is what in the 15th century he could have uh, innovate that was, not, um, that was not written or was not discussed before the, the 15th century. And apparently uh, quite a lot from a theological point of view. So um, this is basically my next, uh, my next project. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm extremely, I'm extremely grateful for having had this time to talk with you today. And I'm blessed by the erudition that you shared. I loved reading this book and I would absolutely recommend it to all our readers. Um, I would absolutely recommend this book to students of Jewish thought and philosophy, students of philosophy, in general, students interested in the hermeneutics of Jewish thought. And I would also encourage those interested in epistemology more broadly to engage with this book. I think it has tremendous wisdom to offer. And I'm humbled that I was able to talk to you today. Thank you it. very much for the invitation. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Um, as we bring this interview to a close, I'm your host, Ari Barbalot, on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Uh, today, I have been talking to Racheli Haliva. She is a junior professor at the Institute for Jewish Philosophy and Religion and one of the co-directors of the Maimonides Center for Advanced Studies, Jewish Skepticism at Universität Hamburg, University of Hamburg. We have been discussing her book, Isaac Pulkar, A Jewish Philosopher or a Philosopher and a Jew, 
Philosophy and Religion in Isaac Pulkar's Ezer Haddad and Teshuvat Apikorus, published in Berlin by De Gruyter in 2020. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.